This episode of the Fit Cookie Nutrition Podcast is brought to you by Koros Global. To get a free accessory like a watch band with any Koros watch purchase, head over to the link in the show notes and use code FITCOOKYNUTRITION at checkout. Hey, you guys, this is Holly Samuel, and I am a registered dietitian, certified personal trainer, master of education with a focus in eating disorders, Boston Marathon finisher, and I am your podcast host today. Today, we will be diving into probably what will be a pretty lengthy (laughs) recap of my first Boston Marathon experience. I'm really excited to kind of relive this today, and I'm really glad that so many of you messaged me and said you really wanted a podcast episode recap just like I did for my last marathon in the fall. So I was like, I mean, sure, I'm happy to hop on the mic and basically relive everything that went down in the past couple of days. Um, So yeah, I mean, let's dive right in because this is probably going to take a while And I have so many thoughts and it's literally April 19th. It's the day after the marathon and I wanted to do everything while I was still fresh. So the short spark notes version of my first Boston marathon is, oh my God, so worth the hype. Um, It's something I've wanted to do for such a long time, probably since the Boston marathon bombings. Um, That's kind of something that kickstarted my whole running career anyway, just out of inspiration. I was not like involved um, on that day or anything like that other than witnessing it on the news um, in my anatomy class in college. (laughs) Um, But I mean, gosh, like so happy that I kind of kept this goal in the forefront of my mind and really believed in myself to get there because man, was it worth it? I'm going to try not to get emotional (laughs) on this podcast episode, but Um, which is hilarious because I'm not really like a happy tears, usually kind of person. Um, I don't know. I kind of like go into performance stone cold game face mode for happy, like happy times instead of happy tears. But like, I was just so many happy tears, like so many different times, um, over the course of the past weekend. So Let's kind of, um, let's kind of rewind. (laughs) Um, because if you're new or if you don't really know, um, I guess like my background and how I got to the Boston marathon, um, or maybe even if the Boston marathon is something that you've maybe heard of, but you're not really sure what the big deal is, or, um, you know, you're just not really super familiar with the whole situation, the Boston marathon, um, this was the 126th running. Um, so it's been happening for about 126 years. Um, it was the 50th anniversary that women were allowed to run the race. Um, so out of 126 years, only 50 of the past years, um, have women been allowed to run the race. So that was just super special, but it is one of the oldest marathons, I think in the world, I think it's definitely the oldest, um, like official marathon in the U S that has been running every single year. Although in 2020 it was held virtually because of COVID, which was kind of, um, you know, a little bit of a break in that streak. I don't know how they handle that officially, but to get into this race, you have to either qualify by running a certain time for your age group, which is really a moving target. Um, it changes all the time. It's very competitive. So it's very hard to get in, um, for a lot of people, about 4% of runners or I think of marathoners, um, qualify for the Boston marathon. So it's a very low number, or you have to raise a really good chunk of money for one of the BAA approved charities, um, which is also 
extremely difficult. I think the minimum is like $5,000 per person for a lot of these charities. It might even be like 10,000. It's a lot of money. Um, so to get into this race, those are kind of your two options. Um, it's really, there's no lottery. Like you can't just sign up for the Boston marathon. You really have to earn your spot, um, through one of those two avenues. So that's why a lot of people, um, I think, you know, think it's probably pretty elusive, prestigious, elite. It attracts a fast field, um, you know, whatever you want to call it. So that's kind of a bit of the background about the marathon. Now, I started running, period, like at all, um, around 2013, around the time the bombings happened. Um I've got other podcast episodes on that, particularly one of the first ones with my high school history teacher, Phil Nicolosi. Um, he was one of the mentors I have who kind of inspired my running um, career starting. And he is a seven-time Boston marathoner um, and just really is like Boston goals <laughs> in general. So you can listen to that podcast episode about his story and a little bit more about how I got started running. Um, but I ran my first marathon in 2016, um, in four hours and four minutes. And I kind of crashed, you know, in the last couple of miles, or at least it felt like I did. Um, and I was like, you know, that was really hard. I wonder if I could do that better. Um, got engaged at the finish line. So of course that helped that amnesia, (laughs) uh, sink in pretty quickly. Um, but I was like, you know, I wonder if I could do that better. And at the time, I, I think I was aware of the Boston qualifying times, and they just seemed like so far out of reach. At the time for me, it was a sub 335 um, hour marathon. It's gone down <laughs> to a sub 330 um, hour marathon. And there's like a cutoff every single year, as a lot of you probably know. If you don't know, when you qualify for Boston, you don't automatically get in. Um it's become so popular, um, of a race that more people are qualifying than they have capacity for because Boston, um, logistically, you know, has a bit of a smaller capacity city wise, um, and course logistic wise than something like Chicago or New York city. Um, it's got a cap of about 30,000 runners, which is a lot. Um, but they do get, they tend to get more people qualifying and applying to run the race than they have room for. So what happens is the fastest people, tend to get in first. And then it essentially means that you have to qualify by a certain amount of time. So if you have to run a sub 330, it's like you have to have done that by at least three minutes, one minute, six minutes, seven minutes, zero minutes. And it kind of changes every year. Um, so at the time, um, back in 2017, when I was running my second marathon, I had to qualify to get to get a sub 335. And I did. I cut off Um, about a half hour off my marathon time between my first marathon and my second marathon. Um, Really, I just followed a training plan. I had more strength and miles in my legs. Um, I started to work on my nutrition. And that is how that all came together. And I qualified at the Philadelphia Marathon for the first time. um, And I ran a 334. I don't remember the seconds, but I qualified by a little bit under a minute. Um, So I kind of had a feeling at that point, the cutoffs were really, really big. Like you had to qualify by at least five minutes or so. I had a feeling I wouldn't get in, but I still was really proud of myself for qualifying. Um, It was insane. I like really wasn't expecting that to all (laughs) come together on that race day. Um, And I was like, holy crap, you know, like maybe I could run this race one day. Maybe it's not so far out of reach. And that is a huge message I want people to take away from this podcast 
is that one, you don't have to run any specific distance to be like a real runner or a good runner or a good person. Um, you don't need to run the Boston Marathon to be, you know, quote unquote, legit. Um, but, you know, if you do want to, if it is something that is exciting to you and it and it makes you think, could I? You absolutely can. Um, I am not that special. Like people who run the Boston Marathon are no better than you. Um, we are all very much capable. Um, it just depends on where you're at right now, where you need to get and what level of dedication and change um, you need to make in your life to make that happen and whether or not that is realistic for you or a priority. Um, but I want you to know that you know if you think you can and if you want to, you absolutely can. That's all you need. <laughs> um, so Anyway, um, you know, didn't get in that year and then, um, but was very much motivated by that because I finished that race like on fire and just like, oh, I, I got to get into that race. Um, and also Boston is an hour from where I live. So it's something that I've always gone down and like done the expo or met up with Phil Nicolosi, my friend or other people from the internet to meet up. Um, and it was so close and I just like felt like it was my backyard race, you know, marathon major casual. Um, so I always wanted to run it, um, cause I had been a part of the weekend and the experience. And even if you don't want to run it one day, it's so fun to go to Boston for a race weekend. Like the city is just like electric. Um, and it's just really, really cool. Even if you're not running, even if you're not a runner, <laughs> um, highly recommend going. And then basically my next marathon was, um, the Philadelphia marathon in 2018, and at that race, I had a really tough race. I kind of had a tough training cycle too. That's when I got my half marathon PR was during that training cycle. But to be honest, we had a lot of weddings that fall, um, you know, a lot of alcohol consumed, <laughs> a lot of not great recovery happening and a lot of travel. Um, and I busted out, I think a 336 at that race, um, which wasn't a BQ. And I think that was the year that the BAA, the Boston Athletic Association also made all of the time cutoffs and the qualification standards for each age group five minutes faster. So like, I definitely didn't qualify, you know, not even close, but again, still was like, eh, I have another race in me. Like I can do better than that. That was just a really tough training cycle. And I kind of gritted my way through that finish line, which I'm super proud of. Um, cause that was definitely a tough, a tough one for me. Um, then came Chicago in 2019 and this was my first marathon world major experience. Um, I'm definitely like for a half marathon, like I don't need all the bells and whistles, if the crowd support's lacking, that's okay. I can get through it. Um, but what I learned about myself through doing a smaller local race, which I did at Wine Glass last fall, is that I really like the extra stuff at marathons. At the full marathon, like having the aid stations every mile, having a scream tunnel the entire way through the course, having like, you know, the the helicopter media and just it's just so extra, but it just helps so much. Like the adrenaline helps. Um the, the energy from the crowd and from other marathoners really, really helps. You see all walks of life on the course. Um, the aid stations just help from a nutrition standpoint. So Chicago was my first marathon major and Philadelphia honestly is like pretty close to marathon major status from like a, how the city shows up perspective. Um, that's a great race if you're looking for something that's similar, but it's not as hard logistically. Um, but anyway, I did Chicago and I was like, wow, what a great day. 
again, had a bit of like some bumps in the road throughout my training cycle, but ended up PRing and qualifying for Boston there with a new time standard. I think I ran a 328 um, at Chicago and I just felt great. Like the entire time my nutrition finally came together for a race. Um, my, you know, little injuries that I had accumulated were behaving. Um, and I just felt like great the whole race. The weather was awesome. My husband was able to run with me for a couple of miles. He was able to like find me on the app and jump in the race for like five minutes or so. And that was just like a great race. And again, I qualified by about a minute because of the new time standard and I didn't get into the Boston Marathon. (laughs) So even though I had a great race, it was still kind of bittersweet. I was still really proud of myself and again, knew I could do it better next time. Um, But again, that, that Boston target really does move every single year. So picked myself up from Chicago, tried to start, um, addressing like I was having a right hamstring problem throughout the second half of my buildup for that race. I did something dumb on like a trail run and pulled my hamstring and then just didn't know what to do. So I did all the wrong things. (laughs) Um, but I did make it to the race and made it through and it was okay. And just was trying to like handle that probably for the next year, to be honest, um, on and off. And, you know, then 2020 happened. Um, I did run a marathon on my birthday. It was my 26th birthday on the 26th of July. And I ran 26.2 miles um, just with some friends and my husband. Totally like easy pace. We were living in North Carolina at that point. It was super hot and humid. Um, I think I ran it in 420. Um, But, you know, just kind of figured out my way (laughs) through 2020. Um, Didn't really race a ton. Didn't do a ton of speed work. Ran once a week with a running group, which I guess was my speed work because they were all pretty fast. Um, like to run those runs pretty fast, but pretty casual um, through 2020, got a handle on the hamstring issue and went into 2021, you know, pandemic being a little bit under control ish, kind of better um, and was like, all right, you know, let's run another marathon in the fall. Um, I'm feeling pretty good. Like my, my strength foundation is super solid. I've been strength training like two to three times a week. Um, I've been running like 25 to 35 miles a week and everything's holding together pretty well. So like, let's train for, um, a fall marathon. What do I want to do? I'll do the wine glass marathon because my husband wanted to do, um, his first marathon and my cousin said that she would run it with us as well. So, um, my training cycle for that race went really, really well. Um, after one of my speed workouts, frustrating, like during one of my peak weeks, I noticed a little bit of left hamstring tightness, soreness, you know, after the fact. Um, Luckily, I knew what the wrong things were this time around. So I did not do those and I did more of the right things. (laughs) So I was kind of able to nip that in the bud and, um, you know, run that race pretty strong. I did have some right hamstring stuff. come up during the race. Again, I have a really massive recap of the wine glass marathon um, on this podcast. It's a couple episodes back from October. So you can learn all about how that race went. Um, Spoiler alert, it was a really hard race for me, but I still managed a 42 second PR um, and I ran a 327.58. So I qualified for Boston. And again, I'm thinking at this point, the cutoff this year for October, 2021 for Boston was like, seven minutes. Um, so (laughs) like, I don't know if this time is going to get me in. Am I really going to get a third rejection email from this race? Like, gosh, this is such a moving target. Um, and something that did kind of change in my brain, you know, between my second marathon and my sixth marathon was that 
you know what? I am good enough to get into Boston. It's such a moving target. I'm just going to keep trying to get better because that's my goal anyway. And one of the times it's going to line up right and I'm going to hit the moving target. That was a really huge mindset shift that I made um, in like four years over the course of part of my running career that just helped take the urgency out of it, um, which is really hard to do, especially around this time of year when it's happening and you're seeing all the Instagram posts and all the pro runners and it's on TV and everyone's talking about Boston and you just get swung up in the hype and you're like, ah, I just like, I'm so motivated. You know, I really want to qualify now. Um, and it's a moving target. Um, and it is not something that's going to define you as a runner. So that was one of the biggest mindset shifts I made that really helped me be okay with my times and my performances because I was able to take them and look at them holistically and not just have that BQ or bust mentality. Um, so, you know, I was a little annoyed. I will admit when I finished wine glass in the fall with about a two minute buffer, not knowing if that was going to be enough, um, to get me in. And I was convinced by one Phil Nicolosi from my previous podcast episodes to maybe run Philadelphia with him in November. Um, he had just run the Boston Marathon in October, and he had a tough race and wanted to try the Philadelphia Marathon in November. He had done it before that way, and it worked out really well for him, and he was trying to get me to run with him. And I agreed. I was going to run the Philadelphia Marathon in November of 2021 and just kind of go out there, run with him and see what happened. Um, because I also felt that I could have performed a lot better, um, under different circumstances at the wine glass marathon. Um, and I, you know, felt like maybe I still had some life left in my legs. I felt pretty good, like recovery wise from that marathon. So I was like, yeah, sure. Let's give it a go. Um, two days before we left <laughs> for the Philadelphia marathon, I got my, acceptance email from the BAA uh, announcing that there was no cutoff for this year's Boston Marathon. If you qualified by the time standard, you automatically got in. Um, and I th think a lot of that had to do with the fact that they had just done a race in October and this was for April. So I think a lot of people didn't want to do the double because um, it's expensive and it's a big commitment um, or people didn't maybe requalify. And also they did require vaccines. Um, so I think that also, you know, changed some of the environment for people wanting to run the race. Um, but I found out that I got in <laughs> two days before the Philadelphia Marathon. So I was like, holy moly, was not expecting that. Um, you know, opted to not run the Philadelphia Marathon because two marathons for me in five or six months is a lot of marathons for my body. And three was like, I wasn't going to make it probably to the start line of the Boston Marathon if I ran Philadelphia. So I opted to run half of it um, with Mr. Nicolosi with Phil and um, kind of try to recover and then start training for Boston, um, which was insane. Totally insane. Um, I was so excited. And one thing I will say is I had just accumulated some like chronic things. They weren't really like injuries, but they were just like chronic nagging, like annoying issues that um, I noticed would get better if I kind of strength trained or PT'd, you know, my way out of them. But I really wanted them to like go away. Like I just really wanted them to be handled or have like a different strategy to use so that I could keep putting together consistent training cycles and not having like um, setbacks because I was just kind of annoyed that I wasn't having like huge setbacks in a lot of my training, but a lot of it was mental. Um, and I wanted to keep not being afraid to do more speed work 
to run faster paces because I knew I was capable. I just wanted my body to hold up for it. Um, so with that in mind, um, I hired my coach. Her name is Kim Nato. Um, I believe that's how you pronounce her last name. I had been following her on social media for a very long time. And I always thought, you know, if she ever has an opening, like I think she's the one that can help me <laughs> with my chronic issues that have to do with like some low back, like hip pelvic stuff, um, you know, and some imbalances in my hamstrings clearly, cause I had had trouble with them for like two years and I knew she was a badass coach. Um, and would help me with the running side of things and help me become a well-rounded athlete, which is really important to me. I like to be able to feel strong enough to just like go do anything I want to do. I don't want to solely focus on running. Um, I know there's a season and a time to solely focus on running, but um, I really wanted someone to just help me be well-rounded and really help me fix my chronic issues. And I knew she was the person. So when I saw she had opened a spot on her roster, I like, messaged her immediately and was like, Oh my God, pick me. Um, <laughs> you know, pick me, pick me. I just found out I got into Boston, um, Hills hamstrings help basically. Um, and she agreed and she started coaching me, um, which was awesome. And let me say as a coach at that time too, um, again, like I had a, f I kind of knew what I needed to do. Um, I was a little bit um, mentally blocked on doing it. And I think I definitely had some coaching fatigue because I make plans for so many of my other athletes, um, that I wasn't doing a great job at really putting, putting one together for myself, um, and mentally having the capacity to create that, um, you know, think outside the box for myself and follow through. So I was like, you know what, I need to practice what I preach. I need to hire a coach, um, because it's something I can finally do. And I really think that's just going to take that planning aspect of it off my plate. Like, Hall, you've done a great job coaching yourself, three BQs, you know, up to this point. But, um, you know, it's going to be really nice if someone else does that for you. So, um, and I laughed too, because she started giving me strength workouts and like some of them were verbatim what I give my athletes. <laughs> so I was like, all right, well, you know, this is validating as a younger, less experienced coach that I'm doing right by my other athletes. Um, and also this is humbling because now I get to take my own, <laughs> take my own medicine. Um, but that's exactly what I needed. So that's been really great. Um, and I will say for this Boston training cycle, um, I, I don't think I would have gotten to the start line as healthy and fitter than I was without Kim's help. Um, so just a little bit of what my training schedule looked like for the Boston marathon, um, without giving away, you know, her secrets. Um, basically I was strength training five days a week. Um, and that, that is a lot, you know, I was strength training, maybe two times a week, um, before, which I know is a lot for a lot of people. Um, but I definitely was only really maintaining my strength. I wasn't really building on it in ways that was making me more well-rounded in ways that was truly correcting my imbalances. What I've learned from this experience is that if you have chronic patterns over time that are creating pain or discomfort or just imbalances, um, it's going to take so much consistency to really overcome and change those patterns to get stronger. Um, two times a week, you know, strength training, you're going to get two times a week strength training results, which is probably not going to look how you want it to look. Um, if you're doing something every single day, it's probably going to happen a little bit quicker. And I still struggle with some of the things that I came into her coaching style with, but oh my God, it's so much better. Um, and that is because I've been so consistent and because what we've been doing has been working well. Um, and I understand that like for a lot of people, 
you know, it is not going to be a priority for you or realistic to strength train five times a week. Um, like I, I get that. Um, but you know, I, when I saw those, you know, um, workouts on my schedule and about three of them were more like prehab, what I would call or core stability focused. So they were, you know, not easy, but they weren't like your traditional, like deadlift pull up type stuff. And then the other two to three strength workouts I had per week were more of the traditional heavier stuff. Um, but when I saw all those on my schedule, I immediately remember thinking, oh my God, like I can't do that. That's like so much strength training. Am I going to overtrain? Am I going to overdo it? Like, how am I going to make time for this? What, you know, and I kind of started to talk myself out of it, but then made myself do it anyway. Um, and what I, you know, kind of figured out is that this is exactly the right time for me to be doing this. Like, I really have no excuse. Like I, I have some time that I can make in my schedule. I'm pretty flexible. I am able to dedicate a lot of time training for the Boston Marathon. I want to dedicate the time. So like, Hall, you need to practice what you preach. And you know firsthand that, you know, I'm sorry for anyone listening to this and this is calling you out. But, you know, as a coach, if I give someone a training plan, and I give them, you know, three, four strength workouts per week. If they're, you know, essentially not committing fully to that, they're not going to get the results that they're looking for. You know, it doesn't matter how good my training plan is. If they're not doing it, like they're not going to get the results that they're looking for. It's not going to be as effective. Um, and I know that. So I was like, you know what? I hired someone. I'm paying someone. I, I really want to show up to the Boston start line feeling so good that I can truly enjoy the day. Um, so, you know what? I got to commit to this. Like, I just got to figure it out. <laughs> um, and again, I was in a good place to be able to do that and make that a priority. I understand that that's not always the case. Um, but that's exactly why I hired a coach at that time, because I knew it was going to be a good time. So I was like, if you want the results, like you got to do what she says. You have to do it, you know, even though you don't want to do it sometimes, even that's kind of annoying sometimes. Trust me, when I was doing 80 reps on each side of quarter range of motion deadlifts to help my hamstring injury. I was like not having fun, <laughs> um, but it worked. So, you know, um, after my long run too, like in the winter. So like, you know, I, I get that it's not fun sometimes, but um, you know, it works. And I was like, if this doesn't work, like if I still have issues after this, like it's not going to be because I didn't follow the plan correctly. Um, you know, I'm just way too anal and dedicated to have that be on me. So that was a big change to my training. Um, strength training five times a week, focusing on the little things that you don't really think you need to do because you're like, oh, like planks, you know, leg lifts, those types of things. That's not that bad. But then you do them and you're humbled. So um, that was a change for me. You know, another change for me was um, I wanted to work with Kim because she, you know, really wanted, um, she emphasizes cross training and, you know, not necessarily being a super high mileage athlete. And while I would love to run all the miles, I know as an athlete, I'm strength-based and I'm just a lot better when I am more well-rounded. So when I do things like swimming or elliptical or biking or horseback riding or hiking, or when I just have more flexibility mentally to go do those other things. So we did incorporate some cross training. Um, we kept my mileage like extremely reasonable. I never ran more than I think 45 miles per week in this training cycle. Never, not once. Um, and other training cycles, I usually went up to about 50 miles per week for my peak weeks, but I didn't even get, I think my highest mileage was 43 actually miles per week. Um, I don't know. I have to look at my Strava, but it was low. It was pretty low. So, um, and she also added in a lot more, um, 
like quality sessions in my long runs. So we couldn't always really push my pace because we were trying to rehab my hamstring and low back issues at the same time we were building for a marathon, which is not always something you can do together, which is another reason why I really knew I needed to stick to the plan. Otherwise I was going to fall behind um, on my rehab and probably get hurt and not make it to the start line as in shape as I wanted to. So we worked on, you know, some slower speed work stuff. um, And we're just kind of smart to try and add in a ton of hill work and just train for that Boston specific course. I was very clear with Kim that my, you know, number one priority was getting to the start line healthy enough to really have a good experience and be able to run the course strong, but that I knew it might be unreasonable to expect a PR given the situation. Um, luckily I had a really good training cycle. Um, you know, I did have some ups and downs with injury stuff and just trying to figure all that out along the way, but I really didn't miss any of my runs. Um, or any of my strength sessions, not one for like several months. <laughs> so um, we all of a sudden got to race week and I was like, dang, I'm in really good shape. Like actually maybe I can PR on this course. <laughs> um, and she was like, you can absolutely PR on this course. So um, let's dive into race week now that I've kind of like caught you guys up um, on what training looked like and whatnot. So Boston race week, um, Oh my goodness. So for me, um, when I get excited, it's like the same, I think this is actually like a scientific fact too, but it's the same like emotional response for me as being nervous. <laughs> so even though I'm like really excited and I'm, I'm happy and it's a good thing, like it just comes off as like nerves. So for me, one thing that can happen when that happens is like my appetite gets totally blunted. Um, and I don't sleep that well. <laughs> so kind of during the last week of my taper, I just had a really tough time eating enough. Um, and I really was force feeding myself. Like, um, like I tell my athletes to do when this happens to them and I did a good job force feeding myself. I, I ate to what I needed, um, for sure. But like, it was not fun, um, (laughs) for me just to put that out there. Um, I didn't sleep great. And also I had seasonal allergies, which was weird because I don't usually get seasonal allergies. Um, so I was kind of stuffy the week before the race too, which of course totally freaked me out because I was like, am I getting sick? Like what? I don't feel sick, but I'm really stuffy. Like, what is this? So, um, that's kind of what my week going into Boston felt like. So even though my, my body physically felt really good, um, energy wise, I was kind of like meh, um, overall. And then we got to the expo, um, on Saturday and picked up my bib Definitely got super teary um, when the volunteer handed me my bib, which was just really, I was like, oh my God, like I I get this bib. I can't believe I'm finally getting this bib. Um, And we did the expo, which was okay. It was kind of um, small. I don't know. It seemed smaller to me than it normally is. Um, Maybe a bit closer to how it was in October of 2021. Um, But we did the expo and then we headed home. And now here comes the TMI part of this podcast. So if you guys listened to my wine glass podcast episode, you know that I got my period about halfway through the wine glass marathon. (laughs) Um, And kind of some of the thoughts I had around that. So for Boston, um, about a month, like a a month before Boston, I, you know, had my period and I was like, huh, <laughs> let me see what the forecast is for next month. And I saw that I was supposed to get my period like the day before or the day of the Boston Marathon. And I was like, oh, are you kidding me? Like, 
I got to do this again. All right. Well, at least I know I can do it this time. Um, but that kind of stinks. But let me not, you know, get too down on myself for that. You still PR'd last time on your period. You know what to do. You know what not to do now. So just kind of push that out of your brain. Well, on the way back from the expo on Saturday, I got my period. So I was like, woo, like we're going to have maybe day three on the day of the Boston Marathon, which is usually it's not an insignificant day for me, but it's a pretty low symptom day. At that point in your menstrual cycle, your hormones have already kind of bottomed out. So really that is like go time when it comes to performing well, because you don't have any hormones in your way <laughs> to you know slow you down. Um, and my symptoms were non-existent for the most part personally. So I was pretty pumped about that. So yes, I had my period on uh, cycle day three of the Boston Marathon um, and I PR'd again on my period. So I'll talk a little bit more about that and what that meant for me too. Um, but I also think that's one reason why my appetite was a little wonky that week. Um, it was probably just some hormones figuring themselves out. Um, but that was just really exciting. So, you know, I was laying on the couch with cramps and all this stuff on Saturday, just so happy that it was Saturday and not Monday. (laughs) Um, and then Sunday, Again, we were still home in New Hampshire, which is an hour from Boston. I did my shakeout run. I packed. I ate all the carbs, which a lot of you probably saw on my Instagram stories. I aimed for about 400 to 500 grams of carbohydrate for four days um, before the race. I kind of spread out my carbs a little bit more, knowing that um, in my luteal phase, so right before you get your period, I typically don't respond that well to a lot of carbohydrates. Like I tend to get a bit of like, um, reactive hypoglycemia, which, which can happen, um, to people. So I was trying to kind of just eat enough carbs, but also eat enough protein. And I knew that I probably wasn't going to be able to do like days just full of carbs, um, during that time. So I just tried to gradually increase my carb intake for the whole week and then be a lot more specific about making sure I got enough in the, you know, couple of days before the race. Um, so that is what I personally did. Worked out great. I cut out all fiber and really tried to increase my sodium intake. Um, because we do require a bit more electrolytes, especially in the late luteal phase. Um, so I was just trying to make sure like, you know, that my hydration was on point, if you will. Um, And I looked at the weather on Friday for the Boston Marathon. And first of all, I couldn't believe my eyes because it's literally never good weather, like in my um, understanding of the history and experiencing New England weather. So I was shocked by that. So I was like, all right, I don't need to worry about that, which is cool. Um, And on Sunday after dinner, we drove down to Boston to stay at our hotel we stayed at the Residence Inn, um, which was right by Fenway Park, um, has a great view of the Sitco sign, which is pretty cool, and basically went to bed and um, was there for just that night. Um, but until we continue, let's hear a word from our sponsor for this episode. Hey, everybody. Have you heard from our newest sponsor, Coros Wearables? Coros makes GPS watches that help athletes train to be their best. Coros uses top-of-the-line hardware with innovative technology to provide endurance athletes with the gear that they need. When you use a Coros product, you know you're getting a tool that has been designed, tested, and perfected for the athlete by the athlete. And speaking of athletes sponsored by Coros Global, have you heard of Elliot Kipchoge, Des Linden, Emma Bates, Molly Seidel, 
I mean, come on, you've probably heard of them and they use Koros products. Koros watches allow you to create your own personalized workouts and training plans for running, cycling, swimming, and even strength or core workout at the gym. If you need an extra reminder to properly fuel during your workout, Koros has you covered with their customizable nutrition alerts. So you can basically have me on your wrist, pinging you every 30 to 45 minutes on your runs to remind you to fuel. Pretty cool stuff. Koros users have set world records, Elliot Kipchoge, and been to the highest point on earth, pushing their products to the extremes. At Koros, creation and innovation is never ending. And for Koros, the user is the focus. So if you are looking to try out a new Koros product and you want to be part of the Koros community, you can use code FITCOOKYNUTRITION at checkout to receive a free accessory with your watch purchase. You can use the link that's in the show notes to do this, and you just can pick out whatever accessory that you want on their page and add it to your cart, and you'll get it for free with the code FITCOOKYNUTRITION. I personally switched over to the Koros Apex over a year ago now from my Garmin Forerunner 220, which I also loved, but the Apex is gorgeous. It's probably one of their more simple models, which kind of defines what I look for in a watch. I just want it to be simple, although this one does still have quite a few bells and whistles that I use. Um, And it's honestly super comfortable to wear. It's not too big on your wrist. And the interface is really, really pretty, and the app is easy to use. So again, if you're looking to try out a Koros product, visit the link in the show notes. Use code FITCOOKYNUTRITION at checkout to get a free accessory with your purchase. Now let's get back to today's episode. Part of what made the logistics so great is that I actually slept pretty well um, the night before the race, which has not always been the case in the past. But anyway, I slept pretty well, woke up. Um, I was in wave three, which started at 1050. Um, and I was supposed to get on an 815 bus. So we took the subway um, from Kenmore Station over to Arlington Station from our hotel. And that shortened the walk a little bit. Um, hung out for a really long time to get on the buses. Ended up getting on the bus at like 830 or so rode the bus to Hopkinton, thought, gee whiz, this is really far in a bus, let alone running. <laughs> um, got off the bus, had to pee so bad, um, which they tell you to pee before you get on the bus. And I was like, I don't have to pee. I'm fine. I don't want to miss the bus. Um, and that was a mistake. <laughs> I had to go so bad. And then when you get off the bus, you have probably a quarter mile walk into Athletes Village, and then you have to wait in the porta potty lines, which are so long. Um, So that was probably one of the hardest feats of the race (laughs) Uh, was just, you know, figuring that out. Um, And then I basically took my picture at the like Hopkinton, it all starts here, sign that you've probably seen all over social media, gotten another porta potty line and started walking down to the start line. They were telling me that my wave was supposed to go to the start line, um, which is about another mile walk or so. Um, And then I went to the porta potty. One more time, um, there were a couple at the start line that didn't have long lines. And um, I did the I did similar things to what I did for wine glass um, in the fall, period-wise. Um, I wore Thinks, just this is not sponsored by Thinks, but I wore Thinks sport um, period underwear. And, you know, that worked out pretty well. Um, I had like a tampon in too, but I just didn't want to have to stop 
or figure any of that out. Um, so for those of you who are asking, going, what do you do <laughs> when that happens? Um, that's a method I found I'm comfortable with that works pretty well for me. Um, and it wasn't raining the day of Boston either, which really helped with the absorption capacity of the underwear. If you catch my drift, um, that was a bit of a issue in wine glass, but it was fine. It wasn't too much of a problem or a sight to see <laughs> over the finish line. Um, but anyway, kind of situated myself. Um, and I'm going to post in the show notes as well, um, a link to my like to know it or LTK page where I have linked my whole outfit, um, that I wore from the marathon, um, including one of my favorite items was my shorts. Um, they're four inch spandex shorts and they had side pockets. And that is how I carried all my nutrition, um, which I get asked about all the time because we're going to talk a lot about nutrition. So for, the beginning of this race, um, like the morning of, I had my bagel with peanut butter and honey and some Gatorade in the morning, like at my hotel. Um, and then I had an applesauce pouch and I tried to eat a picky bar. I only got, I think, halfway through it on the bus. Um, and I had a bit more water and Gatorade. Once I got to Athletes Village, they had like stations out with cups. Um, and I also ended up drinking probably about a third of my handheld water bottle, which had scratch in it, um, which I I meant to bring an extra water, but I just like didn't, I just didn't. Like, I, I think I forgot it because I was, I was already carrying so many things and I just didn't want to lose anything and thought maybe there would be like water at that Athletes Village. And there was, but I honestly never figured out where it was because it was somewhere else other than the Gatorade. So I had some Gatorade. I had my scratch from my handheld, um, ended up drinking probably about a third of that before the marathon started. And I had planned to use that for the first half of the race. So I was like, oh, oh well. I guess I'll just be using the aid stations more often, which ended up working out totally fine, um, which I'll get to. Um, and then I had my Generation UCAN energy powder. I like the Cran Raz. Um, I'll leave a discount code for them as well in the show notes. But um, that I had two scoops of that in an old water bottle in one of the porta potty lines, like 50 minutes probably before the race started. Um, which I always practice with all of these things for my long runs. And I had done a couple late start long runs to simulate the start of this race because 11 o'clock ish is like a super weird time to start a marathon. <laughs> um, and I definitely wasn't used to training that way. So um, I did practice this before and I recommend you do as well if you have a late start race at all. So I felt pretty good, but I will say this is super weird for me. Um, I had my throwaway clothes on and I had like a jacket, like a puffer jacket from Walmart that I've had forever. Um, and a pair of like thin sweatpants and I am a cold person. Like I run very, very cold all the time and it was 48 degrees out and not a cloud in the sky, no wind. And I was hot, <laughs> like walking to the start line, um, in Hopkinton, I was like, I'm sweating. Like I'm hot. Um, so I took all my throwaway clothes off and threw them away before I even started walking to the start line and even walking to the start line in like my crop top, my arm sleeves, you know, my minimal clothing. I was still like, I'm still pretty warm. Like I'm still kind of hot. Um, and they could, I could feel the sun beating down and I was like, huh, like I wonder if it's warmer today than it was supposed to be. And I looked at the weather on my phone. It was like, nope, it's 48 degrees. Feels like 48 degrees. And I was like, okay, well, this is different for me because I'm usually 
freezing. Like I've never started a marathon once, not like totally numb despite warming up. Um, I usually start a marathon and my ankles usually hurt cause they're cold. Like my hands are numb and I can't open my gels. Like every single marathon I've ever run, I've started like that. <laughs> so this was really foreign. Um, so I was also very thankful that, you know, I had done my duty to hydrate well that morning, but probably could have done a little bit better. Um, and I got to the start line. Um, it was really cool. You guys, I was in wave three corral one. So I got to stand pretty much like on the start line when the gun went off, uh, for our wave. And I just was like pinching myself, um, and was trying to stay really focused. And in the moment to take it all in, like you're running the dang Boston marathon, finally, um, you know, enjoy it, enjoy it. And do not go out too fast was my main goal for this race. It didn't want to go out too fast. I wanted to be able to run the race really strong, negative split or even split at least if I could so that I could really enjoy the finish line. Cause I just, my goal was like, I don't want to come around the turn onto Boylston street and be like resenting the race because of how hard the course was. Like, I don't want that to be my experience because I've worked so hard to get here. And I know it does tend to chew people up and spit them out. Um, if they go out too fast. So that was like my, my main goal. Um, I knew that my training was probably adequate for the course, but I just needed to be really, really smart, um, with executing my pace plan. So started the marathon, um, immediately took my arm sleeves off. I was like, I do not need these. This is wild. Like, again, this has never happened to me. I'm hot. Um, and I noticed that my stomach actually was turning uh, a little bit um, in the first like three miles or so. Like I was just a little bit crampy, like, like, a, should I have gone to the bathroom one more time, even though I did go to the bathroom one more time. Um, and I was a little bit worried about that. And I was thinking, you know what, it's probably just because it's a late start and you're already just a little dehydrated um, because like clearly you're running hot and that never happens to you. So let's be smart about this. So I really started off the race, making a point to one, look down at my watch, um, you know, and make sure I did not see anything under a 740 minute per mile pace. That was my speed limit set by me and my coach um, in the first part of the race. Cause it is like a laughable downhill. Like the first mile, I think I lost a hundred, there's over a hundred feet of elevation loss just in the first mile. Like it is so downhill. And even the walk to the start line is like all downhill. Like it is laughable. Um, so I was really trying to take it all in. You're starting the Boston Marathon. Wave at the you know TV camera on the Megatron over the course because you're in the beginning of the wave. So you know maybe you'll be on TV. That'd be cool. I don't know. Um, and I made a point to start drinking my scratch um, in my handheld, which I was carrying early and often because I was like, you are going your stomach's going to get worse if you just get more dehydrated. So really try to catch up and, you know, be on top of this. Um, I saw one of my friends that I had met in a half marathon. She was at the aid station handing out Gatorade, uh, at mile 2.2. So shout out to Erica. Um, I beelined for her and took a Gatorade from her, even though I didn't really need it <laughs> at that point. Um, but I'm glad I did because it kind of got me used to taking Gatorade endurance at the aid stations and into the flow of them. And at the first aid station at mile 2.2, I started taking a water cup from the volunteer and dumping it on my head like immediately. Cause I was like, again, I think you're already too hot <laughs> in this race. Um, and the sunburn that I have today tells me that that was a good strategy. <laughs> um, because the UV index, the sun, clearly it was 
really hot. Like it even felt like my feet, like in my shoes were hot, um, like off the asphalt on the ground. So it was just kind of weird because it wasn't hot out at all. It was 48 degrees. It was like perfect, um, weather and I can't complain at all, but I was really glad that I started doing that pretty early at mile three or so. I saw Spencer, the golden retriever. He is iconic on the Boston course. I don't know if you guys know who Spencer is, but if you want, you can Google Spencer Boston Marathon um, and a dog that's holding a Boston strong flag in his mouth, just sitting, looking like he is having the best day of his life. Um, (laughs) It will come up on Google Images. So I saw Spencer at mile three, which is adorable. I'm a dog lover. So I was like, yes, like saw my first landmark on the course. Um, and kind of just let people pass me. Um, I was really proud of, you know, the first couple miles of this race because I really felt like I was holding myself back. Um, which also gave me, you know, encouragement because I felt pretty good. Like I was like, I'm holding myself back, um, clearly from my pace. So maybe we're going to have a pretty good day. Like, cause you do feel, you know, pretty okay. My stomach had calmed down by this point after the first 5k. Um, and I was just kind of getting in a groove with dumping water on my head, taking in the course, letting people pass me, um, and just pinching myself (laughs) essentially. Um, I started taking my gels. Um, I'm going to talk about this a lot at mile four, um, in training, I'd practiced taking a gel every four miles at marathon pace, um, which is about every 32, well, probably about every 28 to 30 minutes, um, for me, that's what I had practiced. Um, I use the Huma Plus gels. They have more electrolytes in them. Again, super happy I had those for this day where I was apparently running a bit hotter. Um, and I started at mile four and mile eight taking uncaffeinated versions of those gels um, with some water at the aid stations. At the Boston Marathon, and I think all of the marathon majors, the aid stations are every single mile. Um, and they're pretty long. Like They're probably a little under a quarter mile long by the time you get to the beginning and the end of the aid station, which is kind of awesome because you have multiple chances to grab cups. Um, It kind of helps just pull you along the course (laughs) because by the time you get through an aid station, you're already a quarter of the mile, like of of the way through that mile. And then you can just look forward to the next aid station. If you like miss an aid station, there's going to be one within, you know, three quarters of a mile, which is awesome. So um, that was definitely really helpful as well. So that's kind of what I started to do with my gels. Um, I took one at mile four, at mile eight, um, and at mile 12, that was around the time um, of Wellesley, hitting the Wellesley College and the Scream Tunnel there. Um, If you're not familiar with that piece of history, the Boston Marathon originally, you know, until 50 years ago was an all-man's race. Wellesley College was an all-women's college. (laughs) So, it was very iconic for the girls to cheer for the guys. And usually there were like kisses along the way, you know, and things like that. So um, it was, I mean, insanely loud. I started smiling around mile 11 or 12 because like I knew we weren't there yet, but I could already hear it. Like it was so loud. Um, so, so loud. They were, <laughs> they were amazing. And it's a bit of a downhill stretch through there as well. So you just kind of feel like really good um, <laughs> when you're going through there. So I read their signs and got a kick out of that um, and took my first caffeinated Huma Plus gel at mile 12. I started to notice at this point of the race that one, I definitely felt way better than I did at wine class. Um, So that was good. 
Two, I still was kind of terrified that even though I was holding myself back and trying not to go too fast, like intentionally, if I looked down at my watch and saw 730 anything, I immediately started to back off. Um, But I was still nervous. Like, what if I'm not backing off enough? Like, what if I'm still ahead of myself? Am I still going to crash later in the course? And then I kind of would think, no, like, you're fine. You feel okay. Um, You know, you trained for this. You're ready. You can do hills. Um, You know, just focus on, you know, one mile or one landmark at a time. Um, And what I started to notice too, again, I'm still dumping cups of water on my head every single mile, is that those cups of water on my head, they're totally dry by the time I hit the next aid station, like seven minutes later. So I was really glad I was doing that because I think it was really key to me not overheating and getting dehydrated. And two, every time I went through an aid station and got Gatorade Endurance, which my my handheld only lasted me like seven or eight miles and I chucked it, um, you know, I tossed it to the side at seven or eight miles in one of the garbage cans at an aid station. I definitely didn't make it in a garbage can though. So thank you volunteers and sorry. Um, but basically I felt that every time I took the Gatorade Endurance and my gel, I would start to feel a bit lighter. Like my legs would start to feel less heavy and I felt like noticeably like, oh my God, I'm going to have a great day. Um, so I started to notice that like around the halfway point around the scream tunnel. And I was like, you know, maybe you should start taking your gels more frequently because I think the hills where they are in this course, you know, that's where we start to, you know, run out of glycogen if we didn't carbo load, although I did carbo load. So I wasn't super nervous about that. But during the menstrual phase, just my knowledge of this helped me, we do tend to have better access to our glycogen stores, um, which means that we burn a bit more carb for energy. Um, It doesn't mean we don't use fat for fuel anymore or anything like that, but it means that we are just going to burn through our glycogen stores a bit faster. (laughs) Um, So if there's any, you know, hills, speed, um, extra effort on that day, you know, combined with being in the beginning of the menstrual cycle, or even just during the follicular phase right after the menstrual cycle, it may be wise if you can to incorporate more carbs. Um, So I started to notice that and I was like, well, you know, let me keep loose hold of my fuel plan. Maybe I will take, you know, some extra fuel. I had picked up from one of the volunteers at mile 11 or so, a caffeinated Martin gel and a non-caffeinated Martin gel. Um, this is something that I practiced with in training just in case I needed them on course. And I'm really glad I did. Um, they're not my favorite, to be honest. I really like the idea of them. They work well for like so many of my clients. I recommend them all the time. They sit really well with me and they work really well. I just don't like the taste or the texture of them. I think it's terrible. Um, but I can get it down if I need to. So I noticed the caffeine was definitely helping as I took my first caffeinated Huma gel with electrolytes in it at mile 12. Um, and then I was like, I'm going to take this hundred calf Martin at mile 16. Cause I practiced that in my training on one of my long runs and it worked really well. Um, so I ended up actually taking the Martin a bit early, like around mile 15 or so. Um, and again, I started to feel really good. So At this point, I was taking Gatorade Endurance, at least one cup of it, if not two, um, probably every uh, every aid station, except for the ones where I was taking a Huma gel with plain water, um, just to not have too much carb in my stomach at once. So I was trying to really spread it out and keep like a small dose of carbs every single mile for the most part. Um, So I took the Martin a bit early um, and... 
I knew that the Newton Hills started around mile 16. What's also really cool about the course is that they have these big like flags um, on the side of the road every time you enter a new town with the town's name on it. So if it's like, you know, um, Ashland or Natick or Wellesley or Newton. So you kind of know like the different sections of the course that you're getting into, which is just really cool and helpful <laughs> to be honest. Um, Cause I was like, I know the Newton Hills start at mile 16 and at mile like 15 or so it was like, boom, you're in Newton. So I knew it was coming. I knew from my research um, that there were about four Hills that were very significant Um in Newton. Um, so I was like, okay, like we're just going to focus on one hill at a time, expect there to be little rollers in between them. Don't be surprised by those and expect to slow down going up the hills. Like there's no reason to be a hero. Um, like the point is to not push up the hills if you want to run a really good last 10 K of this race, but instead just kind of maintain a consistent effort. So at this point I was not looking at my watch at all. Um, I was just focusing on running an even effort up and down the hills. So the first one, I'd say all of them for the most part, were probably like a quarter to three quarters of a mile long. Um, they're pretty long. They're not super steep. They're really not a big deal. They're nothing worse um, than what I practiced in training. But truly for people, I think it is where they're placed. That makes them hard. Um, the Boston Marathon, I... I was expecting it to be, you know, downhill and hilly because that's what it's described as. It's what the elevation profile looks like. That's what everyone says. It's a net downhill course, but it has a lot of hills. Don't be, you know, shocked when the net downhill also has a lot of uphill essentially. But you guys, the Boston Marathon is downhill. Like it is a downhill course. Um, and I practiced this again. I strength trained five times a week for this, but like it did kind of surprise me how long the downhill stretches were. And if your quads were not prepared for this, yeah, I could see you getting into big, big trouble during this point of the race. Um, so that being said, you know, I kind of got up and down the hills. I took my Morton 100 milligrams of caffeine gel around mile 15-ish, 15 and a half. Um, I kept, you know, doing Gatorade Endurance at the aid stations and would take a cup of water as well. And then also dump a cup of water on my head. So it was usually like three or four cups of everything total per aid station, which again, they're super long and there's a right-handed one. And then there's a left-handed one second. So if you like miss the first one, there's another one. Um, and I tried to really, you know, be smart going up the hills, you know, not rush it just kind of ease off a little bit and go off effort and then ease back into my pace and recover going down the hills, take my gel if I needed to. Um, you know, the aid stations tended to be on the downhills, which was nice and just kind of get back into my groove. And again, I kept noticing every time I took a gel or got some Gatorade, my legs felt like they just were less heavy. Um, like they felt like they were working properly, like cardiovascularly, I felt pretty good. Um, cause I wasn't pushing it too much up the hills. Once I got to, um, the fourth hill, which is heartbreak. Um, I will say, I thought it was going to be super obvious that I was on heartbreak hill. I had no idea I was on heartbreak hill until I was at the top because there's a huge sign at the top that says, congratulations, heartbreak is behind you. And you just conquered heartbreak hill. And I got to the top and I was expecting there to be another hill <laughs> that was going to be heartbreak after this one. And I remember thinking, wow, this hill's really long. It kind of sucks. I could see why there being another hill after this, 
you know, is called heartbreak hill because yeah, that would be terrible. Um, and I'm going to have to get through that and it's going to suck, but you know what, mentally, physically, I could do another hill. And then I got to the top and I was already over heartbreak hill. It was such a good feeling. I was like, Oh my God, that's amazing. Cool. All right. Well, don't celebrate yet. Cause people always talk about crashing after heartbreak hill. Um, so don't celebrate yet you know, keep taking your gels, get to mile 23, and then we can maybe celebrate and start to push a little bit if you have anything left, but you don't need to, you just have to maintain. Um, at that point I had looked at my watch and I think I dropped like a seven minute mile, um, on the back of heartbreak Hill, because again, you guys like, yeah, there's uphills in this course that are very significant, but there are equally, if not greater significant downhills for you to recover. So if you have trained for those and your legs can handle it, I don't know. I thought it was a really fast course for me. Um, and I do well on hills. So that made sense. But so I took my Martin caffeinated gel at mile 15 or so. And then I took um, a Huma plus caffeinated gel, which those have about 50 milligrams of caffeine in them, I believe. Um, um, actually, I think it had 25. Um, so it was a little bit lower, but I took that around mile um, 19. And then I took a, um, another, um, Huma plus caffeinated gel, a mile 22. So I started taking gels like every two to three miles at this point, which was around like 18 to 25 minutes. Um, so really frequent and I was getting still Gatorade and water in between every mile at the aid stations and dumping a cup on my head. So my fueling strategy, I had planned to do every four miles throughout the course, but once I started noticing how well I was responding to carbs and caffeine, basically. I, you know, listened to my body. I didn't take too much, but, um, like I wasn't going to keep taking gels if my stomach started to turn or if I felt like, um, I wasn't benefiting from them, but I felt like I was benefiting from them so much that I was like, all right, you know what? You're going to take your gels every three miles. And if you feel like you want it, if you feel that heaviness start to sink in those negative voices, like let's take it early. What's you like, why not? (laughs) Basically you've practiced this before take it early. Um, so mile 22, I took a Huma plus gel. Um, at that point you are kind of cruising back into the city. Um, and you go through Brookline, which is like, it's so downhill. <laughs> like it is such a long stretch of downhill. Um, and the crowds start to get totally wild and, you know, several people deep, it's really loud. Um, so I felt really good. Again, I was like not letting myself celebrate yet. I wasn't even looking at my watch um, for the last five miles of this race. Actually, probably even more than that. Um, and I just was kind of like, do you feel like you're running within yourself, but also to your potential? And I was like, yep, but like cautiously, like I don't want to get ahead of myself and have to walk on Boylston Street, you know, um, like that's not what I want. So I was like, you know what, you're going to take your black Martin gel that's non-caffeinated at mile 24, because that's just going to help you finish strong. So I took a, I took a gel again at mile 15 ish, and then at 19, and then at 21, 22 ish, and then 24, um, which my dietitian friend Stevie got a picture of me doing, (laughs) um, taking my gel at mile 24, uh, even though the race is almost over. So going into Brookline and Boston, it was downhill, it was super loud. And I was starting to think, you know, my legs feel really good. No one is passing me. I'm flying by everyone. Um, you know, I'm still able to take water. I'm feeling really, really good, um, which is wild. And that's when I started to get really excited um, and just really not believe how perfectly the day was going. And that I had just like demolished the Boston Marathon course that I've heard 
chews and spits out so many people um, over the years. So I was just starting to be like, holy crap. I can't believe that's how this day is going. Um, I also heard so many people saying Holly or like fit cookie on the course, um, which I, again, every time I meet someone who follows me or like, you know, um, listens to this podcast in person, like it just is wild (laughs) um, that there's so many of you and that, you know, you're listening to what I have to say and taking my advice and like implementing it and it's changing your performance. And oh my gosh, like I, I, it's overwhelming. I can't. Um, I love it so much. <laughs> um, so it's really cool to like meet you guys. Um, I didn't really see anyone who was yelling my name on course, but I tried to acknowledge it with my hands in some way if I could. Um, but it was so loud, like for most of the course. And I was running next to a woman for a really long time whose name was Paula and people were cheering Paula, Holly, and it kind of sounded the same. So I couldn't tell if they were cheering for Paula or Holly. So I just kind of waved if I heard something that sounded like my name. <laughs> um, So around, um, mile 24, you know, I took my black Martin gel and I was like, all right, like, let's freaking go. You can see the sicko sign, just work your way up to the sicko sign. You know that you have a mile to go at the sicko sign at the sicko sign. I I heard my name like a couple times. Um, it was so loud at the sicko sign. Um, and you know, I, I just kept rolling and, Oh my gosh, I'm like going to get emotional, but yeah, making the right turn, um, onto Hereford. (laughs) Um, and then the left turn onto Boylston is, it's just so iconic. Like you, you hear people talk about it, but when you're doing it and like, you're just having the kind of race that I had where I just really crushed my plan, like so well, I was just like beyond excited. Cause I was one of the people that got to run down Boylston, like with my hands going up, like trying to get people to be louder. Like I just, I just couldn't believe that, (laughs) um, and I saw my cousin's wife, uh, Kate, she's my, one of my great friends. She was on the first episode ever of this podcast. And she ran wine glass with me and Connor in the fall. Um, she was with her sister, Tracy, on Hereford on that short, short stretch. And they were so freaking loud that I heard them. <laughs> um, and I looked over and she was holding up a sign that said, like, um, run like a Holly carburetor or like Holly or carburetors working great or something like that. And if you don't know the story behind why there's an E in my name, um, just Google Holly carburetors. Um, it's a really well-known carburetor brand, like, which is, um, a piece of an engine that essentially helps the fuel get to work. Um, which is ironic that that's what I do now for my job basically, but in humans, not cars. And my dad was responsible for, putting my name on the birth certificate. And he thought he genuinely thought Holly was spelled with an E. So that's why there is an E in my name. And Kate made a sign (laughs) that said that. Um, And I heard her and I saw the sign. And it was like the only person that I heard shout my name on course and also saw who it was and knew who it was. Um, So that was just like, great placement. Well done, Kate. Um, So I think I laughed at the sign, which probably looked a bit like pain face smiling. Um, And then just really again, like opened up, made the left onto Boylston, which is the best. It's the best. It's so loud. Um, There's a small hill on Hereford that people call Mount Hereford. Honestly, I didn't notice it at all. I, I didn't notice it at all. Um, I, there is a, a similar hill at the end of the Chicago marathon that one I very much noticed, but again, I had a great day on, on, you know, the Boston marathon day. And I just, I really didn't notice that hill at all. Um, so I made the left onto Boylston. 
Boylston is a really long stretch. Um, I remember walking it the day of the expo. Um, so I was like, all right, now to self, like when you make that left onto Boylston, um, first of all, take it in. But second of all, do not sprint yet. Cause like, it's still kind of far. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I turned left and was like, oh my God, I can see the finish line. It's still far focused tunnel vision. I was definitely, you know, raising the roof with my hands. Um, and just passing people. I think, I don't think anyone passed me. Um, and I got to the finish line and I stopped my watch and I, again, pretty much had no salt water left to come out of me, but, um, I was just elated. Like I, again, could not believe I was standing under the finish line of the Boston freaking marathon and that I just, I had no idea what my time was because I stopped again. I stopped looking at my watch. Like once I knew I'd done my due diligence and not gone out too fast. Um, so to speak, you know, the beginning of the race. So I was like, I just kept thinking, do I want to look at my watch? And I was like, are, are you running the right effort right now? And then in my head, I'd be like, well, yeah, you're crushing it. So I'd be like, well, then what's the use of looking at my watch? Cause like, it's either going to make me think I'm going too fast when I'm running the correct effort. And maybe I am going to have a great day or it's going to make me think, oh, I'm not going fast enough. I suck. And then I slow down. So I just didn't look at my watch. So I looked at my watch after I paused it and I saw it said 325 and I was like, oh my gosh, I just got a PR at Boston. Um, you know, I, I really honestly thought I was in, um, low 320 shape on a really good day. Um, and I knew that the Boston course would be a huge wild card. So, and that if my body held up for it, like I was hoping it would, um, that I could maybe get a PR, but I honestly wasn't really expecting to. And was very much okay with even the idea of jogging the race, um, you know, just to take it all in. So the fact that I still got to enjoy the race experience, pick out all these details on the course, notice every little thing, and I was going fast enough to get a PR and like negative split the race. Like, I cannot, I can't put it into words. Like, I can't believe I did that. But also, I very much can believe I did that because I did all the right things. Um and that's, you know, not to sound arrogant, but, you know, I really don't know what else I could have done to be prepared for this race other than maybe like run the course, um, you know, a couple times. Like I wouldn't change anything about what I did, how I executed. Um, you know, now I just basically know what it takes next time. And that, you know, if I'm having a good day, I can maybe not hold back so much in certain parts and push a little bit more in other parts. Um, but I would not change anything, you know, about how I ran the race. So look down, um, kind of hobbled through the finishers, the finish line. Um, I also looked to my left and in a ray of sunshine, literally like standing under the finish arch was Meb, uh, Kofleski. <laughs> um, so I laughed. And again, if you heard my wine glass recap, you'll know that he gave me my medal at wine glass. Um, so <laughs> I walked over to Meb and I was like, Meb. And I, you know, he took my hand and like, he, I shook, I shook his hand and I like kind of pulled him, like we pulled each other close so we could hear each other. Cause it's just so loud. And I said, Meb, like you gave me my medal at wine glass marathon in the fall that qualified me for this race. And I just PR'd and re BQ'd. And he was like, congratulations. You're incredible. It sounds like you had a great day. Like you're amazing. I don't know. He said really nice things like that. Um, <laughs> he's so freaking nice. Every time I meet this man, he's just like, so nice. Um, so I thanked him, gave him a hug and then <laughs> kept walking. Um, 
And then there were really nice volunteers at the finish line who were offering to like take pictures of people kind of like by the finish line arch. So that's where I got that picture of me like with my arms up in the air that you might have seen on social media, which is so cool. Again, I was trying to get um, my my phone out of my koala clip on my back. And my phone was like, the koala clip's very water resistant. But when you're literally dumping water on your head, and it's rolling down your back, um, you know, my phone was a little bit wet inside of its case. Um, mostly I think from that going through the zipper. Um, although I've worn it in the rain before and it hasn't gotten wet at all. So I don't know, maybe it's cause I was sweaty and it was water being dumped on it, but I actually had to like stand there for a bit, take my like otter box off of my phone and like try to dry. Cause I couldn't open like my phone's button wasn't working and my hands were kind of cold at this point because I had been walking and I was like, oh, wow, it's not that hot out um, when you're walking and you're soaked. So the nice volunteer like helped me <laughs> do that so he could take the picture. Um, and I was like, oh, my God, you're so nice. Thank you. And he was like, I've been waiting all day for you to get here to do this for you. And I was just like, just again, happy tears, like a mess. Um, so <laughs> so he took that picture. Um yeah. And then I walked through the shoot. They gave me water. They gave me like a bag of food, um, my mylar blanket, which they like wrapped you in and the medal. I got the medal. I think the volunteer, I told her it was my first. She congratulated me. And she said a lot of firsts today. And I was like, yeah, because they finally let us all in without there being a huge cutoff. Um, I didn't say that, but in my head, I was like, hell yeah. Um, that's why kept walking, um, went into a porta potty to, you know, assess the period situation, fixed myself there. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I walked to the family meeting area, which is where I told Connor and my mom, um, that I would be by the letter H in the hopes that if it was in alphabetical order, I wouldn't have to walk as far as the S. <laughs> um, and it took them a while to get to me, but one of the really amazing things, and I am a Boston newbie, so I have no idea if this is something they've always had or if they've had enough people get hypothermia at their race that they figured they should have this, but they had like nine giant yellow, like fancy buses, and they were just called warming buses. Like it was just a driver sitting in the bus keeping the heat on really high so that you could wait on a bus that's just standing, that's just there in the, in the warmth, um, for your family to come find you. I didn't check a gear bag. Cause I thought I would probably have an easier time finding my family and they could just give me my clothes, um, versus gear check. But in hindsight, gear check was super well organized. So I'd probably do that again next time. But anyway, I found the warming bus and I sat on there took the picture I posted on Instagram of me super teary with my medal and just tried to like wrap my head around what, <laughs> what I just did. Um, which again, like that warming bus, I think I told the driver, I was like, dude, you are the MVP. Like, this is amazing. I'm so cold. Um, I've been hot the whole race and I'm freezing. So that was awesome. Um, and then my family found me and we took pictures and I put my warm clothes on and we hobbled like, I don't even know, it was probably just under two miles back to the hotel. Um, a lot of steps that day. But that was essentially my experience. I'm trying to think if I left anything out. This is getting super long. But <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, guys, I had the best day ever. Um, still trying to wrap my head around it. And yeah, I requalified for 2023. So Let's hope my, you know, almost five minute buffer is enough to get me into the race. I have a feeling that 2023 will have a pretty decent cutoff time because 
Um, I think we'll be kind of hopefully, you know, finally coming out of the pandemic and there won't be, um, you know, back-to-back races like there were this year. And there'll be more races for people to run Boston qualifying times at and people who probably built a lot of fitness over the pandemic. So I have a feeling that it's going to be a big cutoff this year, but I hope that my buffer's enough to get me in. And if it's not, you know, I know I'll get there again one day. So um, man, thanks for listening to this episode. I'm still trying to get through all the messages from everyone from social media, my clients, um, my text messages. I mean, I had over a thousand direct messages from you guys in my inbox, <laughs> um, and like a hundred text messages. So thank you to everyone who was like cheering out there, volunteering at the race, who wished me good luck, um, or told me, you know, congrats after. I'm still pinching myself. Um, I'm ironically probably not the most sore I've ever been after a marathon today. I feel pretty good. Like my legs are sore for sure. I'm walking kind of funny, but, um, I'm recovering really well so far. So that's again, wild to me. Um, I can't believe how well I ran the course, but the main takeaway I want you to get from this is your nutrition really matters. Um, I carb loaded, you know, I was eating enough in general, most of the training cycle, I force fed myself when necessary, because intuitive eating for sports and athletes also means eating out of self care. And it also is the same way if you don't have hunger cues, but know you need to eat. I adjusted my nutrition strategy during the race so that I was getting more carbs, especially during the harder parts of the race and more hydration because it was kind of hot out. And I forgot to tell you this too. Um, I had a protein shake, an organ protein shake in my bag that Connor had brought with my clothes in it for the finish line. And I chugged that immediately. Um, so, you know, I, I felt like I did really, really well on the nutrition stand front. It really does make a big difference. You guys, I've run marathons before and not had my nutrition under control. And usually the last, you know, 10 K is like, it's just impossible to maintain the same pace at the same effort. Your heart rate gets high and then you can't take nutrition because it doesn't hit your stomach right. And it's just so hard to finish a race like that. Your carb loading really pays off. Um, your, you know, fueling every 30 minutes or so, or even less, if you feel like that's helpful, like it was for me, um, yesterday really pays off. Use caffeine if you can, um, get your hydration strategy under control, carry it with you. If you need to dump water on your head, (laughs) if it's hot and your race isn't complete until you refuel. So I hope you guys enjoyed this recap episode again. Thank you so much for those of you who have been like following my marathon journey for several years. That's crazy. (laughs) We've come so far. Um, and yeah, until next time, happy running and go get in some miles for me. Cause I'm going to be taking a couple of days or weeks off here <laughs> to recover. Bye guys. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just nine 99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market. Thank you.